You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. A bit of a how-to on today's show, including how to help your child transition to the new daycare environment, how the gym is getting ready to welcome you back, and how to wear a mask. This past Thursday, the regional municipality of York Region voted unanimously in favor of making mask wearing mandatory for those visiting public indoor spaces. We are joined now on the feed by Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region's Chief Medical Officer of Health. Thank you for being with us to help us navigate this big change in our lives. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with you again. So the long council meeting, a special council meeting, took place on Thursday. What did you need to do in preparation, and how much advance information did you give the members of the council meeting? So the issue was actually brought up at our last council meeting, and uh, this particular meeting was a special meeting to go over the pros and cons of the mask wearing and uh, to try and navigate our way through uh, this particular issue. So it entailed uh, a fair amount of research on the part of our staff and putting together the report um, as uh, the issue is quite complicated, not just from a standpoint of evidence and studies, but also from a standpoint of the legal options that were available. Did you have to change or rearrange any of your advice based on the questions that were being asked of you at Thursday's meeting? So our advice has been very consistent throughout the pandemic um, in that uh, uh, you may recollect that initially, you know, the science wasn't really in support of masking. And uh, as the science evolved, you know, we continue to message the fact that it was recommended that when physical distancing was not possible, uh, that individuals should be masking. And uh, what this particular meeting was about was really to move from that particular recommendation to making it mandatory. The WHO is uh, beginning to telegraph information that they're not certain yet uh, how far away or how close one must be to avoid the transmission of COVID-19. Did that factor into your presentation on Thursday? Uh, No, that didn't because uh, in Canada, uh, the recommendation of two meters still stands. Uh, However, you know, there are tables that are looking at this particular information, as in Europe, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, distances of about one meter to 1.5 meter are the ones that have been put forward. Why now? Why uh, push for the mandatory uh, use of masks in York Region? So our surveys within uh, the York Region malls seem to indicate a variation from around 52% uh, uh, to 83% coverage, so an average of about 65% coverage. And given the fact that uh, uh, the voluntary way of uh, Getting people to wear masks uh, doesn't seem to have reached the desired 80% level, which is pointed out in many studies. And given the fact that we have to prepare for a second wave, it will take some time for people to get used to wearing masks in an indoor environment. The fact that uh, those present at the council meeting voted uh, unanimously in favor of mandatory mask wearing for a certain portion of time until November 30th, what does that tell you about uh, the readiness on the part of the public, the constituents that they represent? It tells me that the majority of constituents are in favor of uh, wearing masks indoors and it tells me that council takes its uh, uh, responsibilities very seriously with respect to preparing for the second wave uh, of the 
epidemic, which is uh, expected sometime during the fall. You know, when I hear you talk about that, Dr. Kurji, it's almost as if you feel it's a certainty. The research uh, that we have done uh, initially suggested um, that there were some individuals that were believing that this was going to be occurring, but as time goes on, I think this is becoming more and more a prevalent belief amongst many experts. All right, let's go through mandatory mask wearing. My first question, who do they protect? Who... Are, is being protected by a mask. While some masks might be able to be a two-way protection, both for the wearer as well as for the individuals that the wearer may be associated with, uh, the majority of the masks and the majority of the studies that we have seen suggest that it is essentially protecting other people from the wearer. So if the wearer happens to be infectious, then one is minimizing the risk of uh, others getting exposed to the wearer. And is there a certain standard of, of medical mask that is necessary or is any face covering considered okay? So we have been advocating the non-medical masks, you know, given that we don't want to uh, impact on the supply of the medical masks. So generally speaking, a two-layer cloth mask, like the one that we have been advocating for quite a while, would be considered to be adequate. There are some portions of... Uh Southern Ontario, and I think of Brampton, for instance, they are going to be providing each household with three masks. Uh, what is York Region's uh, position on this and providing uh, masks for uh, the uh, community? Given that approximately 65% of individuals may uh, um, well already have their own masks, and uh, given that we do know that there are challenges among some sectors of the population uh, to be able to afford masks, uh, we're going to be targeting uh, the giving of masks to those sections of the population that are challenged with respect to the economic costs of uh, uh, purchasing these masks. Let's talk about wearing the mask properly. So would you explain to me exactly how to wear a mask in order to protect others and, and I guess in essence also protect yourself? It would be best that uh, an individual watches the videos that we actually have on our website, uh, yoc.ca slash COVID-19. However, there are some key elements. You know, one must wash the hands before we start putting on a mask, and one must also wash one's hands when one takes off the mask. And, of course, we encourage people to be washing their hands once they're wearing the mask because you still could be touching objects uh, uh, that might actually have the COVID-19 virus and inadvertently be transmitting these to yourself uh, when you take on and take off a mask. So the video explains how to properly take on, uh, to put on a mask and how to properly take it off. What parts of the face should be covered by the mask? The nose, the mouth and the chin. This just ensures that the droplets are less likely to make their way outside the vicinity of the face. What about the eyes? The eyes don't need to be covered uh, from a standpoint of source protection. Uh, if one believed that one was being exposed to virus externally, you know, in terms of some individuals who might actually be breathing onto the individual, then the eye protection does help. So this is the face shield. If you look around, I know you do, we do here at 105.9 The Region. We all are observing others and trying to do what's right as well. I have seen people with their masks on their head, uh, at the top of their head, or under their chin when they're outside and they're not in a place where they have to put the mask on, or they have it hanging from their rearview mirror, uh, they have it strapped along their forearm. What do you think of that when a mask is not being used where people are putting them. 
that is the problem with respect to uh, mask wearing in public. Uh, many members of the public uh, haven't really taken to heart the correct ways of wearing a mask. And uh, by not wearing them correctly, we risk the masks being contaminated. And then an individual touching the contaminated surfaces and touching their nose, mouth or eyes and introducing the virus into the body that way. So a disposable mask should be worn just once, Dr. Kurji? We are actually encouraging the wearing of cloth masks uh, in a, with the uh, view to uh, reducing the uh, environmental impacts of the disposition of these masks. Well, that, you bring up a very good point. If someone is wearing, though, a disposable mask, how, what would you consider to be safe disposal, uh, safe discarding of it? They have to be discarded in the normal garbage, uh, but uh, this is where risks start uh, coming into play, right? When other people uh, may, may inadvertently have to touch those masks, or for that matter, if uh, anything gets blown away from the garbage, or for that matter, if the masks are not properly disposed. Who is exempt from this mandatory mask bylaw? Anyone who has any medical condition that would uh, impact them, you know, with respect to adversely, with respect to wearing a mask, and for that matter, anyone who may uh, be uh, uh, feeling improperly impacted as a result of the Human Rights Code. So that would involve individuals with mental health conditions, with cognitive uh, conditions, with developmental challenges. So these are all individuals who would be exempt. In addition to that, of course, it would be children uh, under the age of five. There are some situations where perhaps members of the community have felt that they need to do some policing, some enforcing, which uh, a lot of uh, trouble can emerge from situations like that. So someone who is exempt, how do they explain that if they're going into a, a public indoor space? So the purpose of uh, our particular instruction in York Region is purely educational. We have had a lot of compliance from our public in New York region with respect to our key public health messages, and we expect that that compliance will continue. So our emphasis is one on the proprietors, uh, the employers, uh, using the best efforts uh, with respect to ensuring that masks are put on. Uh, but what we mean by best efforts is that an employer or their staff would essentially remind an individual who's not wearing a mask uh, that it is now a requirement unless they have an exemption. And that's all. Uh, one would not actually stop the individual from coming into the premises because uh, we don't want to be heavy-handed here and we don't want to stigmatize individuals who have exemptions. We don't need to know what those exemptions are for that particular individual. So this way we will be protecting their privacy. So here's a way of maybe putting a positive spin on it uh, and taking some responsibility as a community member, as a member of, of York Region, of Ontario, of Canada, of this world. You know, for me personally, and I try not to ever speak of, of things on a personal level, but I will in this case, I'm beginning to realize that wearing a mask is a small but important way that I can make a difference in the fight against COVID-19. That's correct. Uh, and the reason for that is none of us knows when we will actually develop symptoms of COVID-19. So for about two days prior to the development of symptoms, we are likely to be infectious. And we would inadvertently have communicated the virus to many other people 
during that period. So it's our civic responsibility to avoid that from happening. You and I were live together back in March, March 11th, uh, here on 105.9 The Region, a special that we did together with a great team uh, behind the scenes. The WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic while we were live together. So is what we're doing now a way to mitigate the impact of a second wave. We want to think about mitigating the impact, but also changing the course of COVID-19. Exactly. You know, um, there are many factors that make a second wave likely in the fall. Uh, First of all, we are likely to be seeing more respiratory outbreaks, possibly influenza outbreaks. If the borders with the United States and other countries get relaxed, we will get again travel-related cases. And with the cold weather setting in, people tend to be put into indoor places a little closer together. And with fatigue setting in with respect to the physical distancing and other hygiene principles, it is very possible and with the start of the school season, it is very possible that a second wave may well come. This is a small thing that we can do to try and mitigate the effects of a second wave. Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region's Chief Medical Officer of Health, I thank you so much for joining us on the feed to explain now this very important next step in the battle against COVID-19. And again, just a reminder, if anyone wants more information about any aspect of COVID-19 from public health's perspective, and in particular, proper mask wearing, where should they go? They should go to our website, york.ca slash COVID-19. And thank you once again, Anne, uh, for allowing us the opportunity to convey this information to our public. And we wish to thank our public very much for all their continuing efforts. And as well, you, Dr. Kareem Kurji, thank you for your great work and also that of the others at York Region Public Health. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye for now. Time for our first break on the feed. When we return, how the gym is preparing to open its doors. Stay with us. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Ontario gyms are waiting for the green light to reopen. Carlton Braithwaite, Good Life's national sales manager, has been front and center when it comes to the fitness franchise's reopening plans. So, Carlton, are you ready? I am, Ann. Thanks for having me. You have been hard at work, you and your team right across this nation, uh, trying to put together what's called the Good Life Standard, the reopening plan. So what went into the planning and who is it that you consulted with when you were putting together your plans? We successfully put together a plan that strikes that really important balance between having the safest club environment possible and also providing an exceptional experience for our members and associates. So that really was the overarching goal. We went the extra mile and worked with emergency room physicians from St. Michael's Hospital, uh, specifically Dr. Andrew Petrosniak and Dr. Chris Hicks. And we ran through comprehensive situational analysis. We went through tabletop simulations as well, all to get a really unique perspective to ensure that the clubs were safe when we reopened. How about talking to the members themselves? You know, they would probably have some uh, ideas and might offer some input when it came to, you know, how to reopen safely and how to draw them in. Absolutely. Um, and so that survey process really did give us some insight as to how members were feeling in terms of their willingness to return, what was going to be important to them amidst the landscape of COVID-19 to ensure that they're feeling safe but can also work towards uh, their fitness goals. And the feedback that we received was really positive. Obviously, there was a willingness to return. And in clubs where we have reopened outside of Ontario, we're seeing some very high indications that uh, our members are very satisfied. Let's talk about that. Where have you been able to successfully reopen? Well, 
perhaps much to the chagrin of uh, listeners in Ontario, we've been able to successfully open in every province where we're situated except Ontario at this time. Let's walk uh, each of us, everyone listening, following, and, and me as well. I'd love to know from start to finish what the new good life experience, what the new gym experience is going to be like, and that which is going to keep me safe and your staff safe. We've put some measures in place um, that obviously revolve around uh, safety with really um, a three-tiered approach. Capacity and managing our capacity really is one of those measures that's at the forefront. We know with physical distancing that we want to be able to ensure that members have the appropriate amount of space to still be able to get an effective workout but not uh, feel as though that space is being encroached by other members or even associates. Uh, cleanliness obviously also is at the forefront of uh, our safety measures. We wanted to make sure that our associates are adopting an always cleaning mentality. And this is why during um, a normal workout day, there will be specific reset blocks where a club is closed so that we can do a full cleaning, a deep sanitization, and then resume workouts shortly thereafter. How do you handle things like group classes and cycling and walk-ins and showers and the toilets and and just the idea of of sweating? I mean, that's what we're all after when we go to a gym. We want the pleasure of perspiring, but it also is, you know, at maybe at this point, uh, by the view of public health, it's a, that's a little dangerous. Sure, and you're, you're speaking specifically to the complexity of what reopening looks like uh, for us as an operation. In terms of group fitness classes, capacity becomes uh, a very strong mitigation measure for us. So class capacity is reduced, and we set up our classes in such a way that a member will have all of the equipment that they need within one station, whether that's a cycling class or one of our West Mills uh, classes as well. Showers are not available during the initial phases, but these are temporary measures, and as we move through the phases and work conjointly with public health units um, and safety experts and medical experts, we'll be able to work towards creating eventually an experience that our Good Life members are more accustomed to. How do you keep the members safe? You know, we are looking at mandatory mask wearing throughout most of southern Ontario, at least in in municipalities or where there is a congestion of people. Will masks be mandatory in all of your gyms? In regions where public um, health units are are required uh, requiring Canadians to wear masks, we'll abide by those procedures in our clubs and we'll encourage members who exercise with a mask to self-monitor and to ease into their workout as they adjust to a new way of working out. So I'm trying to envision this as a, as a, a member of a gym myself. So I have a mask on and the place has been thoroughly sanitized and I'm in to do a workout. Will there be pleasure in this or is it so strict and so have to pay attention to cleanliness, of course, that it sort of takes the joy out of the workout? I think it's a different experience. You know, I can confidently say that members will get a different experience. I still can constantly say, though, that it will be a great experience. You know, we spoke to the joy of exercise and moving your body. And for all intents and purposes, we're going to be ensuring that members still very much have that opportunity. Sure, the conditions will look a little bit different, but, um, you know, with those measures in place like capacity and cleanliness and making sure that we're maintaining distancing, I think the joy will largely come from knowing that uh, a member is, is being safe and we care about their safety um, to the utmost degree. And again, these measures are temporary. So as we move through phases and restrictions are lessened in different areas across the country, then we will likely see a return to an experience that members are more familiar with. I was doing some reading on your uh, the Good Life Standard guidelines, and I see that you have things like the Victory electrostatic sprayers. You also got hospital grade disinfectants and contact sanitizers, and in some cases, 30 minutes of dedicated cleaning after every one hour of member activity. So, how does that work, and how does that make sense, dollars and sense? Because you are a business as well. Our business is reliant on our customers getting 
a fantastic experience. So in our first phase of reopening, we have created an enhanced app that allows members to book their workouts directly from their mobile device or from a desktop or laptop computer. They can book in exactly when they'll work out and they can actually see what the capacity looks like for a specific workout block. And so that's a really great feature that ensures that they're able to balance their time because time is, is very precious and that they can still get uh, a great workout. And how it makes dollars and cents is that we're wanting to take care of our members and associates first. And we feel very strongly that in doing so, that we'll continue to earn the trust of our members and associates and the confidence in those same, same groups of individuals to return knowing that good life really does have their safety as a top priority. Ontario, in particular southern Ontario, has been very hard hit by COVID-19. Did your strategy change and will it change when it comes to the reopening plans and the implementation of your plans? Absolutely. This is a, a, a dynamic and ever-changing environment. You have to throw out the playbook about thinking we want to um, you know, forecast what things will look like necessarily four, six, eight weeks down the line. We have to be agile enough to recognize that our situation could change really within a 24-hour span or less. And so it does require certainly some uh, innovative thinking on the part of our reopening team to make sure that, again, first and foremost, the public's health and safety is taken as the guiding principle for our actions and then looking at what steps will make the most sense and making sure that we're doing this responsibly as well. There are a lot of people out there who are, we call them gym heads, and uh, they, they're crazy for their workouts, and they love it, and it's they're sort of... They're, 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 yeah, passionate and enthusiastic. I like those yeah, individuals. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I do, too. I like people who are passionate about anything. But there are those out there who are a little bit nervous about entering back into a gym situation, a fitness club situation. So what do you say to them, those who say, nope, I'm just not ready. I'm just not certain that I'm going to be safe. We can absolutely appreciate that. So this is, you likely heard the term unprecedented times, and we're in that. It's, it's historical what we're going through. One thing that we do want to make sure that our members know is that we are in this together and we want to support them. We're offering free holds on their memberships during this time if they're certainly not comfortable uh, returning. We want to make sure that they're also aware of all the safety measures that we've put in place that does put their safety as our top priority. All that being said, it's important that people do feel comfortable and confident to return, and that may take time. And we recognize that, and we're willing to be patient to support our members throughout this. Carlton Braithwaite, Good Life's National Sales Manager, thank you for joining us on the feed. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. It's a great discussion. I'm Ann Romer, next on the feed, teaching your children biking skills for life. Afua Ba now with pedal heads. Well, kids about to go stir crazy with cabin fever, but just in time, especially with this warm weather, many camps starting to open up across southern Ontario, and that will definitely help kids release some of that pent-up energy. So joining me to chat today, uh, talking about one of the uh, camps and organizations that's uh, handling these camps that are going to be opening up, Ben Oriel, Regional Expansion Manager with Pedal Heads. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Okay, so for listeners that may not know, what is Pedal Heads all about? Yeah, so Pedal Heads is an educational summer bike program for young kids ages 2 to 12. One of our primary focuses is helping kids get off training wheels and riding on two wheels and then helping them progress from there up through learning the more basic skills, mastering those fundamental uh, biking skills, and then eventually getting them riding on the road safely and competently. And then we also have a trail riding program in the GTA uh, where we take kids along bike paths and trails. That's great. And how many camps are reopening across York Region this summer? Uh, We've got about four or five camps in the the York Region, ranging from camps in Markham, 
uh, Unionville, Richmond Hill, and then of course all all the way down uh, through through Toronto, through the city of Toronto as well. Perfect. And can I just say, I think this is so great because I know for me, my experience in learning how to bike, I'm pretty sure I hit into a couple of stop signs before I got the hang of it. So it's good to know that there's an organization that's going to be uh, helping kids along the way, sort of easing them into uh, the different stages of knowing how to cycle pretty much. Yeah, it's a wonderful program and we have taught countless children to ride their bikes over the years and it's about helping kids learn in a really fun, safe and recreational environment where they have a chance to, you know, challenge themselves and develop their, their cycling skills in a, in a really great and fun manner. And as well as a chance to socialize with other kids and, and make some potentially some lifelong, lifelong connections there. All right. And on that note about camps reopening, talk to me about how it's going to be looking like and maybe how different it might be for kids returning to pedal heads or even trying it out for the first time. Yes, we are super excited to announce that we have all of our camps now operating come come this week across across Canada and the U.S. and it's taken a Herculean effort to to get everything up and running. But we're really glad and proud to say that we are now fully operational. And you are totally correct. Our, our camps are going to look a little bit different from from previous years. Obviously, with the situation we are all going through at the moment. So over the past you know few months, we have dedicated a lot of time and resources to creating a very comprehensive health and safety plan for execution at all of our camps. And just to kind of go over some of the the key pieces here. So first off is we're really focusing on pre-camp communication with our parents, sending them, you know, outlines of what to expect on when they arrive to camp and kind of some of the key areas to go over with their kids before they even arrive. Um, Upon arrival now, we have special check-in lanes um, to help funnel parents into a specific spot. Um, as well as keeping them physically distanced from one another. We have health screen questions that we go through with the parents every, every single day when they, when they arrive. For their gathering of their classes, for each individual class where they gather, we have like a special large numbered cone with hula hoops around the cone, and each child is assigned their own hula hoop for themselves and their belongings. And so this helps kind of main, really maintain that physical distancing with the, with the children when they, when they arrive. We have a lot more comprehensive hand hygiene, sanitation, and cleaning kind of processes in place this year. Um, so we've got special bins for cleaning items that, that might be shared or might be touched by multiple children or even the different instructors. We have provided all of our camps with lots of uh, hand sanitizer, hand soap, bleach, you know, for cleaning the items, wipes, all that kind of good stuff that, that, that's needed for cleaning. And, and then also just in general with our camps, we are maintaining stable in, in Ontario specifically. They talk about stable cohorts of no more than 10 individuals. Um, and we are really abiding by this. So we are actually going to be operating cohorts of around six or seven people max. And we are making sure that these cohorts stay stable. So that means that Instructors do not change cohorts. Kids are not swapped constantly between cohorts. Uh, they remain stable through the week to ensure, um, you know, the kids are not having multiple contacts with a bunch of different people. This is awesome. So of so many uh, great health protocols that are being implemented, of course, to ultimately kid, keep the kids safe. Um, and then now talking about um, the, the limited uh, sort of capacity in terms of the number of kids that can enter. And then you just talking about uh, limiting it to about six or, or seven in terms of about the cohorts, how would the registration then work with, with parents? I mean, if, if I, a parent, as an example, want to sign them up, is there any chance that I could get in uh, my kids into maybe one or two programs before the summer is over? Yes, certainly. We have, we have a vast number of locations across southern Ontario, as, as you mentioned earlier. In terms of how we're operating, in each camp, we have more than one cohort, um, which, is, which is allowed by the summer camp guidelines issued by the Ministry of Health in Ontario. And within the camp, then what we divide it down into is those stable cohorts. So as long as there is enough space for physical distancing to be adhered to, then you can have as many cohorts as you want. And, and like I mentioned earlier, those cohorts are, are stable cohorts of 10, which, which we are abiding to. And so depending on the amount of space we have at a specific site, um, we might have several different cohorts all sticking with that kind of seven or six or seven individuals in each. I know that we've had maybe a bit of a reduced summer program and not sort of fully going into uh, summer programs as as usual, but is there any talk of maybe having uh, potentially maybe limited fall programs to make up for some of the fun that the kids didn't have during late spring and early summer? 
Yes, especially with the weather hopefully staying nice through the fall, that is something that we would definitely explore. And while, you know, we can't guarantee anything at this point, um, it is it is a possibility given that kids might not be going back to school fully in the fall and, and the fact that, they, yeah, they have missed out on some of those fun experiences kind of in the, in the late spring here. Definitely. Okay. And then, so where can parents go for more info if they want to register? And what would you like parents to know as they're registering and maybe getting their kids ready to head out to Pedalheads? Yeah, so they can register through our website is the best option. And our website is pedalheads.com. In terms of what parents need to know is have a good, you know, a rough understanding of, of what skill level your child is at. And our, you know, our registration page does a great job of helping parents navigate through the skills and kind of helping them determine what skill level their child may be. And then simply all you need to do is, is choose which location is most suitable for you and which week and, and the level. And it's simple as, you know, click, click the button and, and you're through. Awesome. And you know what? Parents need it as simple as possible these days, given everything that's going on. Biking is such a perfect way to get exercise in, and it's fun, too. Uh, so I know definitely that a lot of parents are probably going to be signing up for Pedalheads uh, very soon. Ben Oriel, Regional Expansion Manager with Pedalheads, thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thanks very much for having us, and we're looking, for a, looking forward to a great, fun summer here. When we come back, helping to ease your child back into daycare, that story is next. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. back. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. If you're a parent of a little one, getting them back into daycare and into a routine may be an adjustment for the entire family. Tina Cortez with a few helpful hints. Assistant Professor of Early Childhood at York University, Christina Delgado Ventimila, joins us next on the feed. Thank you, Professor, for sharing your time with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, the school and the daycare experience is certainly very different due to COVID-19. In general terms, how can parents help transition kids back to daycare after the centers have been closed for so many months? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I think that uh, it will be very, very important and key really to be very patient and to um, listen carefully to how children are responding to this transition. This is not just a regular transition to going back to uh, a daycare. Now you are going back to a daycare that has a screening area before you enter. And um, as a parent, you can't enter even to the daycare and, you know, drop off your child as you used to do. So it's a lot of uh, adjusting uh, for the child, but also a lot of adjusting for, for the family. And I'm sure the situations are very, very different for each family. But uh, I will say that it will be very important to be very patient, perhaps to organize yourself and going to the daycare a little bit earlier so that you don't have the pressure of having to, to rush. Um, I think that will be key. I also think that, you know, it's important as families to remember that daycares are not just a service. Daycares are a space for pedagogy and for a pedagogical experience for your children and it should be generative and joyful. And anything that you think that you need to communicate uh, with the educators and um, the, the daycare so that that can happen for you as a family, I will say I will encourage you to do that. You talked about arriving early. Are there other steps that parents can take at home as they prepare to return to daycares or hopefully eventually our school environment as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I can imagine, you know, being at home for all these months, uh, the, the rhythms and the routines and the transitions that we, we create at home are different to those ones that uh, daycare usually have. And I think that it, it could be helpful to, you know, start transitioning into uh, routines 
routines that can sort of echo um, uh, the, the routines and the and the ways of of being that we have in in a daycare. So I will say, if it's possible to create uh, a sort of a slow move into the um, routines that you used to have before, when uh, you know daycare was open, um, and so that little by little you you match that. I don't think that is possible to create it from one day to the other. I think it has to be a very progressive um, sort of path that you create, but uh, that that is very possible. Also, we need to remember, you know, children are very capable. Children are in the world. They know that something is happening that is different to the usual. And to talk with them about it, I think it will be very important. That's a very good point. Now, what about dealing with parents' concerns or apprehensions? How, as parents, do we prepare ourselves to take this next step? Yes, you know, uh, I mean, again, I think that the concerns and the anxieties are going to be very related to uh, each family's circumstances, and we know that some families are struggling more than others, and uh, that the situations are very, very different. Um, I think that uh, it will be very important to uh, speak and to communicate what you are feeling, what you are going through as a family, and to uh, think about the daycare as a space for for that kind of communication, as a supporting space, as as a community that is not just welcoming your child, but is welcoming you as a family, and that is there to to help you as much as they can. Um, so I will I will suggest lots of uh, of communication, lots of reaching out to um, not just the daycare, but all all other supports that there might be for families right now uh, in the city. Do you think it's a good idea to expand our social circle a little bit and perhaps include yeah. other family members or other families in um, in our in a, in the well-being of our children? Yes, well, now you can, right? Now we can do these social circles and mm. maybe to another family. Maybe if you uh, have uh, another family that is uh, a friend that also goes to the same daycare that your child is going, uh, that gives great opportunity for your child to see uh, a friend that will also see inside the daycare. Uh, for sure, you know, as much as children can be in, in touch with other children, it's going to help, and it's going to help families to share their experiences with other families, right? Uh, I think that when we can share what we are experiencing, how we are feeling, and you uh, hear that you're sharing that and uh, the people with whom you're talking are echoing back similar concerns, you know, there is a kind of affirmation and, and you feel you don't feel so lonely. I mm-hmm. think that we have been struggling a lot with uh, loneliness. Are there red flags or signs that parents need to watch for? Uh, you know, I, I am always a bit um, cautious not to create big generalizations. I think that uh, if I if I was in the situation of having to go back to daycare with my children, I will be uh, listening carefully and not just uh, pushing through as much as I can. You know, there are you know there are families that can't uh, afford that. You know that you just have to drop your child in a daycare. But I will be very I will try to be very attuned with how I see my children processing the situation that we are going through. How uh, are they able to speak and share uh, with me what is happening, how they are experiencing. I will be trying to uh, create great communication with uh, the, the teachers so that if there is something that concerns the teachers, I can be aware of and we can you know, think of a path to, to address it. So I think there is going to be, uh, there might be anxiety, there might be you know, difficulty in um, the transition and attaching again to the people that the children were used to be with in a daycare. Um, so those are the, the, the moments that I think I will be more concerned in thinking about how am I going to support a child that is having to go back to daycare uh, after all these months. And we have to also consider that there might have been children that were in daycare just for a few weeks and then uh, we, we came to this situation of having to go back home and so for them it will be like re, um, re-transitioning and having to do a gradual entry again uh, as they did it when they start daycare. 
Now, you're currently a professor at York University, but before that, you were an elementary school principal. I have to ask you, nothing could have prepared any educator for what we're experiencing now. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think uh, educators or, or anyone, I mean, this is a truly an exceptional situation that we are experiencing. And perhaps, you know, as, as difficult as it is, it could be a great portal, a great opportunity for us to think about education and what is the purpose of education. You know, we are living in a world that uh, is going through a great ecological crisis where questions of social justice are more present than ever. Is our educational system responding to the world in which we are existing? I think that is a very important question for any teacher right now, for anyone in education, really. And we'll leave it there. Professor Cristina Delgado Ventimila, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for the invitation. Every member of our family has felt the impact of the pandemic. Visits to our own family physician and vets have changed. Jim Lang with the details of telehealth of sorts for our pets. Well, as a pet owner, or pet owners, I should say, plural, my wife and kids and I have a dog and a cat. I'm very excited about this new partnership. The Ontario SPCA and Humane Society partnered with Smart.Vet to bring virtual veterinary care to shelter pets and foster families. This is awesome to talk more about it. Thrilled to be speaking to Daryl Vinecore, the Chief of Humane Programs and Community Outreach at the Ontario SPCA and Humane Society. Daryl, how are you? Uh, Jim, it's, uh, it's, we're doing great, and we really appreciate you reaching out to talk about this partnership. Yeah, it's fantastic. i got to admit, my, I mean, our dog is 13, our cat is 12. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a smart vet telehealth in Ontario. Yeah, you know what, it's actually uh, pretty common in the U.S., and there's no surprise there. Um, there is this platform here in Ontario, and it's the best way to describe it to people, Jim, is just like telehealth that we have for people, but it's actually a step up because not only can you do it by uh, telephone, you can actually text message, and the beautiful thing is you can do a video call with a, a registered veterinarian in the province of Ontario. So if your pet is having the sniffles that you're a little bit worried about at 2 a.m. and you're not sure if you should head down to your uh, vet's office, this is the place to call, and it's going to be very, very helpful for our furry friends here at the Ontario SPCA. Well, and I think this takes it to the next level, Daryl, because you have the shelter pets at the SPCA and foster families. And my wife and I know some people who take in foster pets, and sometimes that can be a challenge, and you don't know, and sometimes you need help in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Statistically, uh, many of the times that as pet parents, we're worried about our furry friends. You know, it's usually the sniffles, and and it can wait till morning instead of having those call-out charges. So that's one aspect of it, too. But for the Ontario SPCA, we'd like to let you know, Jim, where it's also for those remote communities. If you can imagine, uh, I live in northern Ontario, and the further north you go, the more remote you are. Sometimes there's no veterinarians available for five, six, sometimes you have to fly out to get to a service. So this is a wonderful way to add a layer of services to underserved communities. It's, It's just a beautiful thing. Well, and there's two things at play here. A, it's it's using technology for the good of the community. I yeah. love it. Mm-hmm. But B, it's the, the pets are so much part of the family. I mean, you wouldn't ignore your child if they were sick. And the longer you have a pet in your family, the more it's ingrained in your DNA. You're like, yeah, I want to make sure they're okay. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's, you know, that's a really good point. Uh, the family pet is, is an integral part of the family. It, the, the pet's an equal. And uh, I'm glad that we're here today. You know, if you go back 50 years, I think there was uh, a, perhaps a bit of a different attitude with uh, our companion animals. But here we are today, and Smart Thoughts Vet is making it even better for us. You know the other thing, Daryl? With everything that happened with COVID-19 and a lot of people being forced <laughs> to self-quarantine, the pet <laughs> took on a whole new importance for people's mental health. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's a really good point too. So, Dr. Quinn, uh, who founded with some partners, uh, Smart Dog Vet, you know, it's a great idea, and, and it was it was a, a new startup company. And I talked to her on a regular basis, and ironically for her, COVID nineteen has really helped ramp up the success of the business. Because let's face it, we're we're supposed to be staying put as much as possible, so the demand for her service to the public has shot up uh, exponentially. 
Speaking with Daryl Viancourt, the Chief of Humane Programs and Community Outreach to the Ontario SPCA Humane Society, partnering, partnering with Smart.Vet Telehealth Ontario. Uh, you can get details on their website at smartvet.ca, or you can get more details at ontariospca.ca, which is a very helpful website. Now, this is a true story. When my oldest daughter was about six, five or six, I was traveling a lot with work, and she would go to that website, find cats, print them off, tape them to the door. So when I came back, said, Dad, we have to rescue this cat. It's going to die. So finally, we had to rescue a cat. Well, that's good. We're really happy you did. And then uh, there's always some great uh, companion animals that are looking for homes. So we appreciate the support. Now, on a sidebar, this is such a, a great thing. Are there certain pets that have different health issues than others that would help more with this sort of partnership? Yeah, uh, like I'll give you an example. Uh, of course, small dogs are really prone to having problems with their teeth. You know, your large dogs, when you get into the Great Danes, a lot of problems with their hips. But the whole premise of this, and, and we started when we first started hiring a chat, is foster mom and dad, you know, maybe aren't that versed on having a companion animal. And it's the middle of the night, and we're worried. And, you know, they're thinking, what do I do? This is a, it's a, a low cost. Now, we as the Ontario SPCA cover those costs for our, <coughs> me, for our foster families. But it gets them in front of a veterinarian who can do this uh, proper professional assessment to say, yes, you're worried and you should be, head over to the vet, or we're good to go, let's talk in the morning. And that's what I like is, okay, If once I go to smart.vet and have talked to the Ontario SBCA and I have my information, then I can set a game plan. Okay, we can wait till morning. Yeah. At 9, we'll go in. You know, you know, and that's the kind of thing instead of rushing in. And unfortunately, if you go to an emergency vet clinic at 2 in the morning, it's going to cost you. Yeah, and rightfully so. You know, like these folks are getting up in the middle of the night. They're taking away from their friends and family and their companion animals. And, you know, they're, they're in the private sector. They're trying to make it go a bit just like any other uh, business. So they need to charge those prices to make it work for them. And But, yeah, they, they want to stay at home in their nice warm bed as much as anybody else. So if, if we can avoid that piece, it's, it's good for everybody. It's, it is amazing. Sometimes I forget, Daryl, that the Ontario SPCA has been around since 1873. That's that's a remarkable run yeah. of taking care of pets in this province. Yeah, it's uh, quite a history. And, you know, we, there's been a lot of evolution, especially over the last couple of years for the Ontario SPCA. But, you know, um, animal wellness and companion was a real maturity in this sector. There's a whole change of mindset of how we think about animals, how we treat animals. There's, it feels like a way. Uh, you read about it more every day, so it's it's a really exciting time to be part of this sector. And uh, my kids, uh, I have teenage daughters, and they're like, Dad, not another animal video, because I'm a sucker for like, <laughs> have you seen this video of the dog and the cat? <laughs> Oh, it's what makes the internet run, I think. It sure does. Uh, Daryl Vinecourt, continued success with this great program. The Ontario SPCA Humane Society partnering with Smart.Vet, bringing virtual veterinary care to shelter pets and foster families. And then anyone, if they want to, go to smartvet.ca. That if you have a concern of your own with your own pet, you can Mm -hmm. go to the website and get some help and then possibly save yourself money. But more importantly, give yourself peace of mind for your family pet. You got it. That's right, Jim. Daryl, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Thanks, Jim. And great news just released by the Ontario SPCA. Limited contact adoptions have begun at their animal centers right across this province. Perfect. For more information on today's show, please go to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.